Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Nikki Huff. On the program today, we're joined first by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges. We'll discuss his Emmy-nominated program on Contact, a journalism and book author interview program that was housed at RT America. RT was disappeared from Roku and DirecTV, basically erased from cable providers in the United States, and also deplatformed and memory hold on YouTube. We'll talk to Chris Hedges about what this latest wave of big tech media censorship means for press freedom in the U.S. Later in the show, we're joined by Kevin Gastola once again to update us about the ongoing issues surrounding Julian Assange and his extradition case. We'll also talk about YouTube's news shelf and efforts of big tech to deplatform and censor many dissident and diverse voices here in the U.S. Stay tuned for an hour on media freedom and censorship on the Project Censored Show. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on this segment, we are joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges. He was foreign correspondent 15 years for the New York Times, where he served as the Middle East Bureau Chief, as well as the Balkan Bureau Chief for the paper. He is host of the Emmy Award-nominated RT America show On Contact, which is actually what we're talking about today, because YouTube disappeared six years of that program, along with all of RT America shows and archives. This is a massive wave of censorship, one that's actually been a long time in the making. This is the most recent wave of big tech censorship. As our listeners know, Chris Hedges is also author of many, many books, including America, The Farewell Tour, The Death of the Liberal Class, Empire of Illusion, and many others. But let's dive right in here. Chris Hedges, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk about this latest massive wave of censorship over at RT America. First, I want to explain why I ended up on RT. I had been with the New York Times, was very outspoken about George W. Bush's calls to invade Iraq. I'd been the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times. I'd spent seven years in the Middle East and much of that time in Iraq. I speak Arabic. And I gave a commencement address at Rockford College, Rockford, Illinois. I was booed off the stage. The, at one point, the crowd stood up and started singing God Bless America, chanting USA, USA. The right wing media grabbed this and looped it. So every hour I was being crucified. Rush Limbaugh, I think, devoted about four days to it. And the newspaper issued a formal reprimand under Guild rules. You give the employee a written reprimand. Then if they violate that prohibition again, they can, under Guild rules, fire you. So I was finished at the Times, and not just at the Times, but that kind of anti-war stance. When you go back and look at the climate, I would come into New York, and my phone bank and my message phone bank would be completely full of death threat until they ran out of space. And so I was finished at any media, and that's when uh, Bob Shear, who had been pushed out of the L.A. Times, where he'd been a columnist, he'd previously been the national correspondent, and then, of course, before that was the editor of Ramparts, he started Truth Dig. So I wrote for that for 16 years until the publisher decided to fire Bob. We all went on strike, demanding that she not remove Bob and we be allowed to form a union. We were all fired. So the walls, a permissible space for someone like me, significantly narrowed, and I was offered a half-hour show on Telesur, which I did and enjoyed. And then Telesur crashed and burned because of the Venezuelan economy and the Argentine government became right-wing and stopped funding it, etc. 
and then RT picked it up. So they rebranded it. The Telesur show was called Days of Revolt. The show on RT America was called On Contact. It was primarily interviewing authors. We never had a show on Russia. The very few times that we mentioned Russia or Putin, it was not in very flattering terms. You can go back and, for instance, look at the interview I did with Alan Naren would be a good example of that. And it's clear that that kind of discourse is being targeted. And that's not supposition, because if you go to the 2017 Director of National Intelligence report, which accuses Russia of electing Trump, in essence, they devote seven pages to RT. And it's fascinating that they accuse RT of Russian propaganda, but all of the examples in that seven pages, including naming my friend Abby Martin, is about giving voice to anti-fracking activists, Occupy activists, Black Lives Matter activists, third-party candidates, anti-capitalists, anti-imperialists. That's what angers them. And so RT and my show was long a target. The war crime that Putin committed by invading Ukraine, preemptive war under post-Nuremberg laws, is defined as a criminal war of aggression, gave them the excuse to shut us down. And they did. And then, of course, YouTube, owned by Google, disappeared me, <laughs> disappeared six years, some 300 shows, none of which had anything to do with Russia. I mean, the last few shows were Kai Bird's biography of Jimmy Carter, and then another show in his biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, a biography, a very fine biography by Benjamin Osher on Susan Sontag, Russell Banks, the great novelist. I did a show on the 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses with a great Ulysses scholar, Sam Sloat at Trinity College Dublin. I mean, the most obtuse censor in Silicon Valley should be able to figure out that a show on Ulysses, which was written 100 years ago, is probably not going to serve as a platform to promote Russian interests. Well, Chris Hedges, I watched On Contact. Actually, it was more in the vein of what you'd see years ago when public radio, public television had a little bit more of a pretense toward public interest or public intellectual interests. Decades ago, one would suspect that a show like that would be commonplace in public media. This raises the bigger question, of course, what's happened in the U.S. to even our alleged public media, which isn't public really at all, and why should Americans have to go to a media outlet run, essentially, at least in part, you know, supported by a foreign government to find out what its own country is doing? I used to work for NPR. I covered the Falcon War for NPR and then worked for NPR in Central America. NPR has been destroyed as, a, in my mind, a credible news organization. Listen to all things considered, half of its lifestyle and country western singers, which is as a place, but not in the news broadcast, they're relying on wealthy donors and corporate funding, and they run commercials. They don't call them commercials, but that's what they are. And so they are not going to antagonize the people who are funding their organization. PBS, of course, is the same. So the last show nationally on PBS that dealt with power was Moyers and Company with Bill Moyers, which they had been an hour, and they reduced it to a half hour. And he had to raise his own money. I think he raised it from the Schumann Foundation. It wasn't even funded by PBS. And then when he went off the air in 2015, that was, that was it. So yes, you're exactly right. That's where someone like me probably should be. And if you go back and look at public broadcasting in the 70s, you would hear voices that were not owned by vested interests. Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky, Angela Davis, uh, James Baldwin, all of these figures were on. That's why you have a, a public media. And so, yes, the, the natural place, it was a very wonky show. I mean, it should have been on at, you know, PBS at one in the morning with one old writer interviewing, you know, other writers. But there's not even space for that anymore.
You quoted, I remember years ago in one of your books, the Freedom of the Press preface for Animal Farm, and in it, yeah. Orwell wrote, anyone who challenges the prevailing orthodoxy finds themselves silenced with surprising effectiveness. The genuinely unfashionable opinion is almost never given a fair hearing, either in the popular press or in the highbrow periodicals. And look, that's coming out of the 40s. wasn't published until the early 70s. We had a lot of signposts, a lot of warnings along the way that these things were happening. We've been writing about the different types of censorship and the way censorship has been morphing, changing, actually becoming both more clunkish, obvious, but also sophisticated. Some of the terms that we use today are deplatforming, demonetization. We're talking about it all with like marketplace kind of terms. And, and we talk about how these are private companies that, quote, have a right to decide what happens on, quote, their platforms. But isn't it also the case that these major companies, Alphabet, Google, YouTube, Meta, Facebook, Instagram, etc., they've basically enclosed the public commons. There's been a complete corporate capture of where alleged public discourse takes place, and it's being completely policed, these narrative police, these big tech curators, whether they're algorithms, people, or policies, never clearly explained, always with nebulous terms like community standards and so on. So let's get to the middle of that controversy and that real serious challenge. On one hand, we have the alleged free press really run by six corporations. On the other, we got a handful of big tech companies running, quote, social media, where half of Americans are going to get news and information. What do we say when people talk about how this isn't censorship, these are business decisions, or the government didn't come in and tell Alphabet or YouTube what to do? Well, of course, they're bonded, and they do the bidding, especially of the Democratic Party. So it's the Democratic Party that hauled in these CEOs in this remarkable set of hearings and beg them for more censorship. Algorithms have hit my stuff before I left TruthDig, the IT people, on, on impressions. So if you'd type, gone to Google, typed in imperialism, and I'd written something recently on imperialism, it would come up with anything else. Well, that's all erased. So referrals by impressions over a 12-month period, the last 12 months I was there, declined from over 700,000 to below 200,000, and I bet it's below that now. They did the same thing to Julian, demonetizing, taking away all his credit cards. You couldn't donate to WikiLeaks. By the way, I just came back from London. I was one of six guests uh, that Julian and Stella invited. And then, of course, prisons being prisons, denied his guest entry, the six of us. This is the Assange wedding for our listeners. Yeah. So you have shadow banning of all sorts of mechanisms that we don't see. These companies know everything about us. We know nothing about them. We do not want to give them the power of wholesale censorship, which is why I opposed deplatforming Donald Trump. I don't want to ever read another Trump tweet for the rest of my life, of course, but I fully understood that this was essentially the gateway into doing, of course, what they've now done to me and what they will do to everyone else. And it's the Democratic Party that is really pushing this hard. And the reason is because they're terrified. The, the Biden administration has been a disaster. It is not in any way responded to the very real suffering and dislocation of the American working class. And so they want to make all the troglodytes go away by essentially shutting down their voices and shutting down voices of critics like me. But this is really counterproductive. It essentially shows their inability to be self-reflective and to understand that it's neoliberalism and austerity and out-of-control military budgets and trade deals and all this kind of stuff that have dislocated such a large part of the electorate and seen that segment of the electorate throw the weight of their support behind a demagogue like Trump. You go back to 1932 in Germany, you had a very similar phenomenon with the rise of the Nazi party. Then you saw von Papen 
the aristocrat and those around him to try to recreate the ancien regime. And it was a total disaster because they were serving the interests of the banks. They actually banished unemployment insurance at a time of the depression, massive unemployment. And the Nazis in 1928 were pulling in the single digits. And then, of course, by 1933, they're in power. History doesn't repeat itself, but as Mark Twain said, it rhymes. And we're in a very similar situation. The stagnation, the inability of the Democratic Party to break free from corporate control and push through the kind of FDR New Deal measures that might save us from this nascent fascism is not being done. And their response is censorship. So it's, it's extremely short-sighted. It's extremely dangerous. Uh, and I just happen to be a small victim of this effort. You and many others, of course, including Abby Martin, whom we've worked with for years, over 500 shows of Breaking the Set disappeared. Lee Camp's eight years of work there on Redacted Tonight. You know all these folks, and we've worked with these folks too. And we opposed the deplatforming of Trump from Twitter as well for exactly the reasons you gave. And again, we're not letting the right off the hook here as a censorious sort of blob here. Uh, the right has long censored, but the problem that I have at least is that there doesn't seem to be enough noise being made about censorship when it comes from the left. And we've seen the whole issue with cancel culture and so on coming, but a lot of people on the left want to talk about how that's not a problem. These aren't problems. They are not censorious. They're just making decisions about which voices are heard or which aren't. And there's also the term that is associated sometimes with cancel culture that's consequence culture. I've heard some arguments saying, well, RT was Russian propaganda and people working there had to register as agents, foreign agents. So therefore it's justified in not having those views on air. First of all, we didn't have to register as foreign agents. Only the head of RT had to register as a foreign agent. I covered Eastern Europe as a reporter. I was there in 1989. I was in the Magic Lantern Theater every night in Prague with Václav Havel. I knew Havel. If you wanted to hear Havel's voice, you had to listen to Voice of America. Havel had no love for U.S. imperialism or U.S. capitalism. It's a very cynical kind of arrangement. We did it by championing the voices of Soviet dissidents and crushing our own dissidents like Paul Robeson and Malcolm X and all sorts of others. So that's the great game of power politics. So yes, of course, there was a place for me on RT because I'm a fierce critic of my own country. But in a functioning democracy, that's salutary. You want those critics to be heard. You don't have to agree with them, but there should be a place for them within your society. And when you push them out, of course, uh, you know, RT is going to embrace it in the same way that the U.S. government embraces Pussy Riot or anything else. It's a very cynical game, and it has long been part of power politics. So I knew what the game was, of course. But to not go on there was essentially to allow myself to be deplatformed. And now I've gone to Substack, like my friend Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald, which is subscription-based, because there's nowhere else. It's chrishedges.substack.com. If I can get enough subscriptions... Then I can continue to write my weekly column for Bob Shear, who was trying to run this site basically out of his Social Security check, and I can pay for the shows myself. The subscribers will pay for the show, and then I will reconstitute the television show and do the column, and it's the subscribers who will fund it. That's kind of the last model, but now you're hearing all this noise about shutting down Substack for exactly the same reason. And they always pick the outliers, the anti-vaxxers, uh, I don't know what a stupid thing to Joe Rogan say or whatever. They always pick those figures as egregious examples to shut everyone down. And you don't want to let amorphous private monopolies start determining who gets a voice and who doesn't. Because yes, they will always pick off the most obnoxious figures like Trump, but that becomes a justification 
for that kind of censorship. Remember, in the lead-up to the elections, Silicon Valley was working overtime to elect Biden, and they did all sorts of nefarious things. First of all, they produced hundreds of millions of dollars of anti-Trump ads, and we don't know how much because it was dark money. They Twitter removed the New York Post from its Twitter account when it published the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop. There was a whole campaign against that laptop, which the New York Times a couple days ago admitted none of it's fictitious, it's all real. So the New York Times up and during the campaign was calling it disinformation. MSNBC was saying it was right out of the Russian playbook. These are my greyhounds in the back, sorry. The press itself has destroyed its own standards to become partisan. I recommend Matt Taibbi's book, Hate, Inc. On one half of the front cover is uh, Rachel Maddow and the other is Sean Hannity. I'd like to remind listeners where you're tuned to the Project Censored show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Chris Hedges. We're talking about the latest wave of censorship online, including on RT America, where he had his program for six years. We'll continue our conversation with Chris Hedges after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're joined today by Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, author of numerous significant books, including Empire of Illusion, Death of a Liberal Class, more recently, America the Farewell Tour. We're speaking about the recent wave of censorship online with YouTube disappearing the entire RT America channel. That's where Chris Hedges had his Emmy Award-nominated show on contact. Chris Hedges, we've been talking a lot more about censorship broadly because this isn't the only issue. Censorship has been extraordinarily on the rise. And before the deplatforming of even Donald Trump, we saw the celebrated deplatforming of people like Alex Jones. And you mentioned earlier that often the tactic is to pick the more egregious case, deplatform it, trial balloon it, see what happens. And then a week later, in the ensuing weeks after what happened to Alex Jones, uh, everyone from Mint Press News to Naked Capitalism and other left sites all saw massive traffic slow down, you know, throttled in searches. This is the campaign to silence and censor. Over the years of Trump, we had the weaponization of the fake news term. That seems to have morphed into a catch-all misuse of the term misinformation. And now we're talking about needing fact-checkers to curate misinformation. COVID gave great cover to this, that we need these people to watch out for us and make decisions for us, basically outsource critical thinking for us. Well, first of all, Silicon Valley has admitted that the people who are going through its content are drawn from the national security apparatus. At this point, they're virtually indistinguishable. I just want to say part of this effort is to funnel people back into the embrace of the traditional media. There's complete collusion between New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, and the algorithms direct people. Let's just look at my old employer, the New York Times, who sold us the lie of weapons of mass destruction, who spent two and a half years peddling conspiracy theories about Russiagate and Trump as a Russian asset, who put out this, I would call it, racist piece of audio 
snuff porn called The Caliphate, a 10-part series that turned out to be a complete hoax uh, that I mentioned before, uh, uh, said that Hunter Biden, the contents on Hunter Biden's laptop wasn't worth even investigating because it was disinformation, on and on and on. So the idea that these establishment outfits like The Times uh, somehow have a higher standard and therefore viewers and readers must be directed towards their content as opposed to the content put out by a Glenn Greenwald or a Matt Taibbi or anyone else. It just doesn't hold up. We're seeing that now, too, with YouTube and their so-called news shelf. Talk to Kevin Gostola about this, where they're basically saying, here's where the legitimate news sources are, and if it's not on here, they're not. I mean, this is high-level curation, to be polite about it. It's censorship pretty boldly. Interestingly enough, the historical parallels here about this sort of shepherding people, quote, back, I think that's what that whole Spotify flap over Joe Rogan was about, about the fact that he's got over 10 million viewers and listeners. The corporate media can't hold a candle to it. Back in the late 30s, the alleged hoax broadcast of War of the Worlds that turned out not really to be so much of a hoax and didn't have exactly the, the crazy fallout that the legacy press at the time claimed it did. But that was an example of the legacy press, the papers, seeing radio as a major threat to sort of the monopoly that papers had at the time. And we see this now. Washington Post has an article, Facebook paid GOP firm to malign TikTok. Here we see major establishment press once again trying to say, hey, these companies can't be trusted. They're fighting with each other. They're not news sources. Come back to us. I see this as a pretty broad campaign to try to shut down any kind of alternative or independent voices and say, people that claim they're looking for the truth, what I'm seeing is looking for a ministry of truth, the stamp of approval, the New York Times. This is like what NewsGuard does. These news curators that put a green badge, a yellow badge, a red badge on your browser when you go to a certain website. I'd say we're already pretty far down the slope, Chris Hedges. So flipping this around to a more positive, if possible, you're doing something with, you said, Substack. You're trying to keep things going that way. That's also under attack. What are some positive, proactive things you think that we should all be doing or could be doing to try to stem the tide here? There's a reason that this discussion is happening on a non-commercial radio station. I think we have to reach out and support those entities that remain unfettered from corporate and oligarchic control. And there aren't many. I mean, it's not a new story. Bob Shearer ran ramparts. He could never get any advertisers. A very funny story about him taking a Pan Am Airlines ad off the back of Time magazine, putting it on the back of ramparts, and then taking it around to businesses to show he was respectable. And of course, the only result was that Pan Am sued him. So it's a long story. The real press, you know, the Ida B. Wells kind of investigative journalists, the old muckrakers, they never had support, commercial support. And, you know, none of us are making much money. I mean, we all live on the margins, but, but we, we want to safeguard our integrity. So I would say that supporting those outlets, Sheer Post, Bob's done a pretty valiant job with very little uh, with that uh, site, Pacifica stations, obviously, community radio like KBU or anything like that. Are the alternative weeklies that I think were very important have largely disappeared. I mean, we've seen uh, the media landscape atrophy quite dramatically since certainly when I began as a journalist. So remember, it's always the alternative journalists and the alternative publications that have always pressured the mainstream publications into doing their job, which is why I'm such a huge supporter of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and why they are so fierce to discredit and, uh, frankly, destroy him. I mean, they're trying to kill him in Belmarsh. It's a long story. It's not particularly new, but I would say the tools that they have now 
are probably more sophisticated and more dangerous than at certainly any time in my lifetime. We've addressed these issues for a number of years, and a most recent publication Nolan Higdon and I did called Let's Agree to Disagree talks about the importance of critical thinking, communication, conflict management, all undergirded by critical media literacy education. And so we hear a lot, uh, particularly the justifications from the liberal class, as these ideas from QAnon and the right are dangerous. They're all too dangerous. I hear many times otherwise allegedly educated, open-minded people saying, we can't talk to those people. Those people can't be talked to, can't be reasoned with. And I think that if we have a broad media diet and if we have programs like yours and we have people out there talking about things, why are 11 million people listening to Joe Rogan? Because he's talking about things and bringing people on his show that the corporate media have marginalized or ignored or aren't interested in, even if the public actually is. What do you think we should be doing in terms of addressing the people with whom we disagree? What role would media play in that? And how do you see that, that playing out? Media exists today mostly to divide people and spur more hyperpartisanship. And what we need is actually something far more different about building bridges instead of walls. Chris Hedges. Well, we have to stop demonizing them. And I speak as somebody who comes out of the white working class in Maine. My relatives hold positions and opinions I find repugnant, frankly, but I still love them. Their suffering is real. Towns in Maine, like anywhere else, have been destroyed by NAFTA. And we have to address their suffering, acknowledge it, and help them fight back. Uh, there are no permanent allies, as Lord Salisbury, who was a piece of work, once said, but there is permanent power. I teach in a prison, and my students, when they get out, if they have a 3.1, they matriculate to Rutgers, and these are all black, brilliant intellectuals, but they are all helping to organize the food service workers at Rutgers, some of whom are Trump supporters. That's where we have to go. And once we begin to actually show compassion and stop being censorious and engage in these games of moral purity, but focus attention on the real centers of power and fight back on behalf of everyone. That is the mechanism, Amazon workers, Starbucks workers, all these people who are attempting to unionize, that's where we have to be, we have to stand with them. And one can state their position, their, their anti-racism and their anti-homophobia and everything else uh, without denying these people their humanity and also acknowledging that they too have legitimate grievances. Chris Hedges, I could not agree more and that's been the focus of our most recent work as well. Apparently a lot more work to do We've been speaking with Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. We were discussing his show on RT America called On Contact. Chris Hedges now writing for Sheer Post, Substack. Anywhere else people can find you or follow your important work, Chris Hedges. ChrisHedges.substack.com. Thanks so much for your time, Chris Hedges, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk again. Thanks, Mickey. That was my conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Chris Hedges. Up next, Kevin Gastola joins us. We'll get an update on Julian Assange, and we'll talk more about big tech censorship. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Huff. Today's program, we welcome back Kevin Gostola, managing editor of Shadowproof at shadowproof.com, also produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. And listeners to this program know Kevin for his great work on whistleblower journalism, particularly coverage of the Assange case, among many other things. And we're going to talk about the Julian Assange case. And later, we're going to talk to Kevin about online censorship, big tech censorship, and challenges of state media. 
So we're going to have an interesting conversation on media censorship and the importance of a free press. Kevin Gostola, welcome back to the Project Censored Show. Hey, thanks. It's good to be with you. Just recently in the news, we have both bad and good news around the Julian Assange case. One is that the Supreme Court there in UK made a, an unfortunate decision regarding his fate and extradition, and you can talk about that. And also on the other end of the spectrum, he married his longtime partner. So Kevin Gostola, let's talk a little bit about um, what's happening with the Assange case. Let's begin with the marriage, because I'm of the viewpoint that it was an incredible act of defiance, love, bringing two people together. It's often said in ways that I think people might find pretentious on the left, that love can be a revolutionary act. But truly, if there ever was an example in recent memory, this was an act of revolution because, in fact, before they had their wedding day, they were initially told it would not be allowed in Belmarsh High Security Prison. And they threatened to sue the British government and they got them to blink. In the game of chicken, they decided it wasn't gonna be worth it to fight Julian Assange on marrying someone he loved. And also the mother of his two children, Gabriel and Max. So it's important to remember that there's a family and we saw them all, there was a wedding party and Gabriel, who is Julian's brother, was there. And also his father, John, was there. There were witnesses that were allowed to be in the prison. But one of them, Craig Murray, was actually prohibited from being part of the wedding party. And we learned from Stella that there was a restriction imposed on who could be witnesses to this wedding. And that was that Nobody who was a journalist would be allowed to be in to the prison to witness this moment. And there was some paranoia on the part of the administration of the prison that an image might get out showing Julian Assange and Stella wedding. And uh, just so people are aware, Craig Murray is a former ambassador to Uzbekistan. Uh, he's recognized as a whistleblower, but also recently, he did some jail time because he was targeted in a largely unknown press freedom case. And he's a good friend of Julian Assange's and, and their family. And he wanted to be president, but he was denied the ability to be in the prison. And again, the person is Stella Morris, Assange's longtime partner and mother of their children. They got married and that's really important. The backdrop is, however, that the extradition request is likely on its way to the home office, which is the last stop for authorizing extradition to the United States. And they still have the possibility of filing an appeal on all of the issues related to press freedom that have not been litigated in the appeals courts of the United Kingdom. But the defense team seems to be keeping their options open, or maybe they're not sure what to do. I don't actually know what they're going to do next or in what order. As I talk to you right now on March 25th, I have no idea what they're going to do because uh, they have four weeks while the extradition request is in the home office to make their case to Pretty Patel, who is the home secretary. And I can tell you a little bit about her in just a second, but Pretty Patel will receive a package 
That is basically the defense argument for denying the extradition request, much like what the Westminster Magistrates Court, the district court, received when they were shown evidence asking them to deny the extradition request. They can build in all sorts of developments, including what's happened at the appeals court and the fact that they were denied at the Supreme Court level. They can raise human rights issues and press freedom issues. There's no limitation to what they can do to make it a political issue for the home office. So it's kind of complicated, but then it's not. I mean, if we want to simplify it, the United Kingdom is dutifully playing its role as a servant of the United States and has agreed to shepherd Julian Assange's extradition in order to make sure that he gets brought to the U.S. to be put on trial for reasons that you know we've discussed. 18 charges, Julian Assange is 17 of which were under the Espionage Act. And you and I have talked about this before and talked about the absurdity of it before. But we've also talked about the seriousness and what this pretends for press freedom issues. I mentioned Pretty Patel. And I said I was going to give you just a brief thumbnail background on her because at the moment there is a proposal to vastly expand the official secrets act in the united kingdom this is something we don't have here in the u.s we have a first amendment and that actually there is no criminal prohibition on publishing secret government documents which is unlike the united kingdom and there they are looking at expanding this so they could prosecute journalists and whistleblowers and sentence them for up to 14 years. And these are supported. This is something that has been recommended by Pretty Patel. This is the office that is going to authorize or make the final decision on Julian Assange's extradition. It does sound, and I hate to be negative, but it sounds pretty bleak given Patel's past. How many steps are left? It could be by the end of 2023 that Julian Assange is brought to the United States. I didn't think this was a possibility, but I truly felt tremendous sense of doom, if that's the best word for it, because the Supreme Court just flat out denied him a day in court to challenge these diplomatic assurances that the State Department has offered outside of many of the legal arguments that have been made outside of much of the evidence that was put forward, which Judge Vanessa Baretzer responded to in a way that I think recognized the gravity of those claims about how people are treated in U.S. prisons and how people who are sick, who have mental health issues like Julian Assange, suffer and they deteriorate within those prisons. And basically, the Supreme Court decided, we're not going to even approach this issue, which Amnesty International roundly condemned, saying, this is bad. This isn't just about Julian Assange. We're talking about people who have been tortured or suffered human rights abuses or requesting states that are, are, are suspected of engaging in torture and human rights abuses. If they come to the UK, now there's a precedent for them to be extradited with just basically the lip service being paid by officials of that requesting state. So any country who has a treaty or a formal agreement for extraditions can come to the UK and say, oh, we know you're concerned about us maybe torturing this individual. We won't do it. And then that's that. It's a preposterous claim, given that we know matter-of-factly that the U.S. government had actually planned and plotted 
to to kidnap Assange, to assassinate Assange. There were open calls in the U.S. press from U.S. political figures and government appointees and the CIA calling for the killing of Julian Assange, yet we're supposed to believe that somehow he'll be treated fairly here? It is preposterous, and nobody really has approached the issue who is a judge. And part of that, I think, has to do with the culture of the courts, and we also have some evidence that the chief justice of the high court, which overturned the lower court decision, is compromised, is a friend of somebody who was in the government, who was involved in the pressure campaign to remove Julian Assange from the Ecuador embassy, where he had lived in London since 2012. He was there for nearly seven years through April 2019 before he was finally forced out. And so I think in the worst estimate, 2023, maybe a little longer, I had always favored the view. This was when people asked me, what do you think Joe Biden's administration would do? I said, well, I don't think they really want to put Julian Assange on trial because I don't think the U.S. and the image it wants to project could handle Julian Assange being on trial in Washington, D.C. It would be really bad. I mean, China, Russia, all the different rivals are going to pick that apart and use it day in and day out to attack the credibility of the United States. So why would you want to put him on trial? And I thought they were just punishing him by process. And eventually when it came time for the British government to authorize the extradition, they would just let him go. But with the war in Ukraine, there's a complex set of issues that we probably can't get into right now, although we're going to deal with some other related matters. I just think because of what's been written and claimed and said about Julian Assange, which the legal team really wants to avoid and not confront head on, and I, I understand their reasoning, but because of what he is alleged and believed to have done within the U.S. Congress and parts of the U.S. government when it comes to the 2016 election and allegations related to Russia, I don't think it's very good. There's really no political will at all to remove these charges and let him go free. We're speaking with independent journalist Kevin Gostola of shadowproof.com. Kevin also, for disclosure here, for full disclosure, has a book that he is working on at the Censored Press, Guilty of Journalism, that is about the extradition case for Julian Assange. And that book will be out next year, so we'll certainly be talking about that. Right now, we're going to continue our conversation with Kevin Gostola after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in the program, we're speaking with Kevin Gostola. We're talking about the Julian Assange extradition case. And right now, we're going to turn our attention to issues of big tech censorship, state media. Again, the big picture here is the importance of the free press and the silencing of key voices of dissent. 
Kevin Gostola is managing editor of Shadowproof.com and produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. Kevin Gostola, not long ago, I saw a fantastic segment that you did online on social media about YouTube and their community standards. There's been another raft of deplatforming, demonetization going on I mean, around the war in Ukraine. Could you talk a little bit about this big issue? It seems as if we're really kind of back to a, a neo-McCarthyite era here. We have these community guidelines that YouTube has been fashioning, and truly they've been putting these community guidelines forward in response to claims that have been made about Russian disinformation and misinformation that was spread. They started doing this after the 2016 election, and they've been constantly changing and adding new policies, but there really isn't any accountability. And if you run afoul of these policies, there's very few ways that you as a creator can challenge the censorship that will be imposed against you. There's strikes on your account if you have your channel taken down entirely. And one of the things they adopted recently is that you are now prohibited from posting content that denies, minimizes, or trivializes well-documented violent events. And it said clearly, we are now removing content about Russia's invasion in Ukraine that violates this policy. So on its face, it's a content neutral policy, but it's also not because it's really about whether you have a different viewpoint about Russia's invasion into Ukraine than what is the dominant narrative coming from US government or NATO officials. Kevin, we just saw two years under COVID of real control over narrative, a lack of ability for people to ask questions, if you run afoul of the narrative, you're immediately a conspiracy theorist or worse. This is not new at all. I mean, we, I'm not going to have to go back to the 1960s here, but go back even further. We could go back to the 50s. We could go back to the 20s, the first Red Scare, 1919. There's a propensity in this country to silence people, to impose kind of a groupthink. But now, two things. One, we've got YouTube taking down pages, dropping channels, getting rid of everything from RT America, for example. All of Abby Martin's programs, over 500-some programs from Breaking the Set disappeared. Leak camp. We could go on and on. This is just the latest wave of these things. Now, that's connected to state media issues as well because RT America was connected to Russia, as we all know. And in fact, even people there needed to register with the U.S. government as foreign agents, which, again, is a, is a fairly preposterous thing. We don't see that happening with the BBC or others. Can you unpack this for us? On one hand, YouTube is a private company, Alphabet, Google, and so they claim they have the right to control what goes on on their platform. But you're just talking about how vague some of these things are, these community standards. And now, of course, we have this issue of if you can't go to one place, you go to another. What if that other place is state media because you can't seem to get platformed anywhere else? Unpack this for us because it does get a little complicated for some to follow. It's important to ask, what does it mean to deny? What does it mean to minimize? What does it mean to trivialize? And recognize that this policy isn't going to just be imposed on discussions of the Russia invasion. It's something that will be used against all conversations about US foreign policy. What does it mean if you don't believe the initial report about an incident that happens in Russia? 
I'll take something, for example, I hope it doesn't have any repercussions for your own radio show, but there are questions about what's been going on in Mariupol because the Azov Battalion has quite a presence in that city. They claimed that a theater was bombed, but there really weren't, so far as many outlets could tell, a lot of casualties. So who was bombed? Why was it bombed? What is this? Just having that conversation on YouTube, it seems runs afoul of this community guideline, trying to figure out what breaking news is and whether it's accurate seems to run afoul of this community guideline. And now you mentioned that people who worked for these outlets were registered as foreign agents. They were registered, made to register. And this was a policy that the Committee to Protect Journalists actually condemned. This is a very well-respected in the Beltway organization that I've actually criticized because they won't recognize that Julian Assange, who we previously discussed, is a jailed journalist. They won't include him in their jailed journalist index. And yet they could see that it is wrong to force people who are with state media outlets and also to do it in a way where some are accepted. People who work for BBC or the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation are not made to register as foreign agents while they're working. If you work for Deutsche Welle, which is a German broadcasting corporation, you are not made to register as a foreign agent. And right now, what you've seen is the total censorship and the shutting down of RT, Sputnik, radio stations, their channels on YouTube have now been removed. John Kiriakou, a CIA whistleblower, had his show removed from YouTube, and they are blocked from distributing their podcast on any of the distribution platforms like Spreaker, Stitcher, I think Apple Podcasts, Spotify doesn't want to allow them to share their shows. There's a conversation that has to be had, I know you wanted to have this, about the way we view this state media. So on one hand, let's recognize why people like John, Abby Martin was someone who had a show at RT America. Lee Camp has called himself the most censored comedian in America. Why did he take a show at RT to do this work? And it is because, and this is really articulated very well by John Kiriak, what he told me, is like, look, I want to be invited on CNN. I'd love to be invited on Fox News. I want to go on MSNBC and talk about the issues I care about. John's very passionate about prison issues and sentencing reform. But the thing is, they never invite me. They don't want to have me on. But Sputnik allows me to be on the airwaves two hours every day to discuss the things that are important to me. And he even says in my contract, I got a clause included that I could say whatever I want about Vladimir Putin that I can criticize him, I can criticize the Russia government. And the person who hired me agreed to put that in my contract and I've never been told what to say. I have total and complete editorial freedom, which I think is more than we can say about a lot of people at these news organizations like CNN, MSNBC, New York Times. You know, Abby Martin, when there was the invasion of Crimea and, and Russia annexed it, she protested this military operation and she kept her job at RT America. But just think of something similar, like the assassination of Kasim Soleimani by the Trump administration. If somebody had broken with the government and criticized that, do you think they would have kept their job on CNN? Somebody, if they actually are like, 
Well, they take a controversial stance and say, I think that it's wrong to launch an operation with SEAL Team 6 into Pakistan to, to murder and kill Osama bin Laden. Not because I don't think he isn't somebody who's engaged in heinous violent crimes, but because we did it without coordinating with Pakistan. And it would have been better to go seize him and also to put him on trial so that there could be a way of reckoning with all that he had been involved in. Imagine if somebody voiced that viewpoint, they would lose their job instantly. And certainly, even though this isn't the focus of our talk here, it should go without saying, but we will say it. There is incredible censorship in Russia. And of course, Russia will censor Voice of America, for example. They'll censor other voices. You're not even allowed to say war or invasion. We've seen entire crews of journalists walking off of Russian news programs. So this is not to deflect or, or deny any of those significant challenges or censorship or particularly the harsh policies in Russia about LGBTQ people and others. We're not having this conversation without acknowledging that there's all these other problems and things going on in Russia. But I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. But it's really important to point out this is really a critique of the media landscape or the media ecosystem in the United States, in the West. And there is an incredible wave of both state censorship. Corporate media censorship is, is basically baked in. The people in these media outlets don't need to be told what to say or not say. They are trained to know what the myopic frame of discussion and discourse that's considered legitimate is. But now big tech has been deplatforming, and this is a major issue. And I wanted to bring this up finally as related to what we were just talking about with YouTube, Kevin, and why this is a significant problem is that a lot of outlets, independent outlets, have now had to take to email lists or other old school ways of getting out the word. Even grassroots fundraising is being targeted. Menar Mahawesh's Mint Press News and Behind the Headline nonprofit just recently launched a fundraiser. By the way, this is also part of a campaign to remove Loki from Spotify, the rapper and commentator. He has some affiliation with Mint Press News. GoFundMe took down two fundraisers that Menar Mahawesh had up for Mint Press and Behind the Headlines, and um, it said that we're reaching out to you to inform you that your GoFundMe account has been removed because it violates our terms of service, which you can view here. Specifically, the content of your fundraiser falls under prohibited conduct. What was Menar soliciting for? She said that they were facing censorship, suppression, and Google ad violations, and so needed to seek support from readers. Comments on that, Kevin Gostola. Well, a question I would ask GoFundMe is if you are trying to circumnavigate those structures that are limiting your access to your viewers and subscribers and readers, is that a violation? Is this like sanctions if you try to find a different way? When the U.S. imposes sanctions against Iran or Venezuela, and then they try to find another country in which they can get those basic materials and supplies that they need for their people, including food, then I suppose we've, we've taken to try and decriminalize that. I'm suggesting that there's an analog here in independent media, that if you try to carve out another way in which to fund your work, that I suppose they're going to be a cartel that prevents that from happening. You know, it's worth going back to the, the disclaimer you included and just to point out that our censorship of state press from so-called adversarial nations does not bode well for media freedom and democracy in those particular countries because it is tit for tat. When RT America got shut down, 
that was when you saw the news about drafting of a fake news law where people could potentially go to prison for up to 15 years in Russia if they were violators. And that led BBC, several organizations to say, we can't have a presence in Moscow and Russia any longer. We're going to have to leave because we could end up being attacked. And so it's led to a crackdown on independent media in Russia, but we also see it here. We know that we've seen it here and we know why, while they've been discrediting independent media, that they're also privileging, and this is part of their policy. I just want to read this. It says plainly, our systems are also connecting people to trusted news sources. This is what YouTube had. So far, our breaking news and top news shelves on our homepage have received more than 17 million views in Ukraine. And so while they are de-platforming people, they are boosting corporate news. The shelves, there's no access. Actually, what's remarkable is there's no access for like a BuzzFeed or Vox or Vice or anything that like comes close to being alternative press, but maybe isn't. We could have a debate on it, but not right now. But it's just very narrowly limited to CNN, NBC News, Bloomberg, highly corporate sources that are already recognized as sanitizing their news reports on a daily basis. And Kevin Gastola, not surprisingly, NewsGuard, which is the online monitor of what is a legitimate news site with their green, yellow, and red shield that's built into the browsers. Take a look at who's behind NewsGuard. It's like a who's who with a military-industrial security complex. And they're doing similar things. If you're a corporate media establishment legacy media outlet, you get the green shield. If you're Mint Press, Consortium News, Counterpunch, something else, you're yellow or red shield. These tools are being used as, quote, media literacy tools to tell people what are legitimate and non-legitimate news sites and thus sanctioning perspectives, opinion, etc. It's incredibly Orwellian, but to see it embraced by so many is quite alarming. I see a number of educators, even librarians, that have been unquestioningly embraced NewsGuard. Pen America talks about the importance of NewsGuard and their fighting fake news workshops. It's actually preposterous. I've attended some and tried to ask questions about it, and I pointed out the many conflicts and problems. Nolan Higdon and Susan Merritt have written about this, Allison Butler, others. I see these things as all connected, Kevin, in terms of trying to curate certain narratives about what is and isn't acceptable. I think that in the end, we need to be connecting all the dots about these onslaughts about free press rights and free expression. Kevin Gastola? The one group that is giving a lot of advice to these tech companies is this digital forensic research lab within the Atlantic Council, which actually happens to be the PR agency for NATO for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So isn't it incredible that while this military alliance is choosing what to do next to respond to Russia, and I actually don't accept that as there, there shouldn't be any debate. We absolutely should debate. We clearly should debate whether you impose a no-fly zone, how much weapons we funnel in, whether we give any care whatsoever to the fact that as the Responsible Statecraft website, which is funded by the Quincy Institute points out, the Global Arms Trafficking Index puts Ukraine at the top, near the top of the index. And yet we're funneling billions of dollars of weapons into Ukraine that are gonna end up on the arms trafficking market. We need to consider these issues, but you've got the PR agency for NATO deciding who gets to have a presence on these social media 
and tech platforms and who does not. And let's not forget that Atlantic Council is one of the fact checkers at Meta at Facebook. They have representation there. And again, this is what I was saying about NewsGuard, Kevin Gastola. It's always important. And part of being a critically media literate citizen is looking behind the curtain and looking at seeing where is the funding, who are the players. And then lo and behold, the dots almost will start to connect themselves at that point for anybody that bothers looking. And what we're seeing here, Kevin Gastola, is a crackdown on even our ability to look, let alone discuss and debate. And again, that doesn't portend well for a free press. Kevin Gastola, where can people find out more about your work and follow the writing that you're doing? You can go to the dissenter.org. That's my newsletter. As you said, I have a podcast I co-host, Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast with Ryan Kalik. Um, and I'm working on a book on Assange, which should be coming out in early 2023. Definitely looking forward to that, Kevin Gastola. Thanks as ever for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. And I'm sure we'll be catching up with you again. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. And last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Thinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised under the guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for our taxes while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. In the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out the reach, all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love of the